we had figured out from these prisoners that there was only one person that actually knew where Saddam was hiding. It was one of his former bodyguards. And so we were, these prisoners and me and this Delta Force team, we were looking for this bodyguard. He was not on the deck of cards. He was not really wanted. But we were going after him. And on my last day in the country, very last day, we captured this bodyguard. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we speak to Christians in the public eye about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian publication. If you'd like to receive a free sample copy, go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Eric Maddox. Eric is a former soldier who was part of the Joint Special Operations Command responsible for tracking down some of the world's most wanted men, including former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. He has been deployed several times in support of the global war on terror and has conducted thousands of interrogations. He now uses his negotiating and communication skills to help professionals navigate the world of business. Eric Maddox, welcome to the show. Thank you, Megan. So, Eric, before we get into your really fascinating story, let's talk a little bit about your faith. How did you become a Christian? That's a great question. I grew up going to church, but for me, it was pretty ceremonial. I didn't really have a relationship with God. And that kind of existed through my childhood, even through college, even through my early years in the military. And it was not until I married my wife, Heather, and it was the first time she and I were married where I was going on a deployment and I'm leaving for Afghanistan. Like I'm getting on the plane and she kind of asked me, she's like, are you saved? And I'm totally focused on this mission, right? Cause it's, it's 2004 and I'm going to Afghanistan. And I was like, am I, am I going to be safe? I was like, Heather, you know, I'm going to Afghanistan. Yet we've talked and she goes, no, are you saved? I was like, are you talking about God? I said, I, I think I'm good. I was baptized as a baby. She's like, oh my goodness, are you saved? And I was like, Heather, my mom goes to church. I think, and she's like, oh my goodness, are you saved? And I was like, Heather, I found Saddam. Who? Who's God looking? Who's he taking up there? And she goes, I can't believe it. And she goes, just don't die and I'll send you tapes. And she started sending me these tapes of this Baptist preacher. His name was Adrian Rogers. And they helped me sleep, right? Because they kind of put me to sleep. But the more I listened to them at night, you know, it kind of connected. And then it really connected. And it was really grace. I didn't understand grace. And I think so many people who go to church when they're young just don't understand grace because it's not the way we operate in this world. And obviously, you know, it was in Ephesians 2, I think it's 8 through 10. It's like, hey, you didn't do anything. And you're forgiven through the gift of God of grace. And it just clicked for me, right? And so from that moment is when I know I kind of became a Christian and gave up control. And obviously there's journeys right? And you come kind of different journeys of your awareness. But for me, it wasn't until, so that would have been 
when I was um, 36, 37 years old until I really understood what Christ did, what it meant to be a Christian. Now I'm almost 50, so that's how long I've been a Christian. So that whole time you spent in Iraq, just before you went to Afghanistan, you, you weren't a Christian during that time. I wasn't now looking back, because I had zero relationship with God. I didn't go to church. Thought I, I didn't know. It's one of those things, I think if you don't understand Christ, you avoid the subject in your mind. Because death and eternity and it's just one of those things you go, I don't even want to talk. I don't want to think about it, especially when you're in kind of a position in the military. So I had some experiences I felt were um, <laughs> completely with God's hand. So I always had curiosity. I'm like, what's, I wonder what, I wonder how this works, but I don't want to think about it because I don't want to think about death. So tell me about how you, how you got into the army. Speaking of God's hand, right? So I am a student at the university in my state, Oklahoma, and I'm coming into my senior year, so I have a year left and I love to run, right? That's what I would do for my off time. And in the summer before my senior year, I'm out running on this path. And I had a voice that just told me, go join the military. Now, Megan, I don't know how it works in England, but a lot of people in the United States, we're not, we're not all into guns and hunting and st I just wasn't. I was into sports. I never shot a gun in my life. And I was told, go join the military. And it, it, the voice to me was so clear that I knew I didn't have a choice. So I went and joined the infantry. I was a paratrooper. I had a very clear message and I didn't want to. I was not excited about it, but I did. So as soon as I graduated from university, I went and joined the military, having no idea what I was going to do. What did your friends and family think of that? What, what, did you explain to them how you come to that decision-making process? So I told a very few close, close friends that I was told to do this, but I don't want to tell a bunch of people because it kind of sounds stupid. And they thought I was ridiculous. They're like, you're not the army type. You, people like you, Eric, don't join the army. They're going to eat you up. Like, come on, man. And I enlisted, Megan. So they're like, and you went to school. Yeah, you're, you're people like you don't go enlisted. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I really have a choice. So they thought I was crazy. The people who um, I told about the voice, they're like, oh my goodness, what was he drinking at the time, right? So, it was, but I didn't care. I knew I was. I knew that was what I was supposed to do. At the time, did you attribute that voice to God? Did you feel that that was God speaking to you? I did, 100%. Didn't know what God was, didn't know who he was, didn't know what, I didn't know anything, but there was no doubt in my mind. For you to be the life that I lived, which was not about any sort of commitment and any sort of responsibility, I'm like 21 year old kid, just living the good life, right? No responsibilities to doing that. No way. I was. I didn't want to do that. It was, it was a very clear voice to me. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how you got into interrogation. So you, you joined the army, um, mm -hmm. but you ended up working in a very specific area, didn't you? And you ended up learning Mandarin and, mm -hmm. you know, avenues, all these new avenues opening up for you. So tell me a bit about why you were attracted to interrogation in particular and what you learned about interrogation techniques 
Sure. So, Megan, I spent three years as a paratrooper. I was kind of an infantry person. Well, while we were there, we did this short little deployment in Panama. And I thought it was super cool kind of interacting with the locals, trying to learn Spanish. And I thought it was very interesting. And I realized the United States military had a foreign language program. So I went and took this test to see. They test if you could learn foreign languages. And they said, hey, you could be really good at this. Pick one if you want. So I <clears throat> picked Chinese Mandarin. Megan, What's that? Go for something easy. Well, they said it was the hardest one. And I thought, I think China's on the come up, right? I think they're going to be something. And I think, you know, when I get out of this army thing where I don't make any money, I'm going to go be a businessman in China. <laughs> so I was just going to learn a foreign language. And they said, well, you got to have a, like an army job. And they said, go be an interrogator. Megan, this was in 1997. When there was like the most peaceful time in world history, they said, don't worry, you'll never do interrogations. It's this really short eight week course, but we're going to teach you Chinese Mandarin for a year and a half. You'll never be an interrogator. So I go learn Chinese Mandarin. They give me the interrogation course. Well, a couple of years later, we have 9-11, right? So now we go to war in Afghanistan. And then we go to war in Iraq. And this whole time we're in starting these early wars. They're like, you're the Chinese Mandarin linguist. You're not going to these wars. But finally, I don't know if they ran out of interrogators, but this Delta Force team. So in the United States military, we've got our special operations and Delta Force is our top group. And they were going after Saddam when we went to war in Iraq. And they said, hey, army, big army. And our, the United States army is huge. They said, go find us an interrogator who used to be in the infantry. And I went to this really hard army school called Ranger School and I graduated and they said, by the way, we'd love a graduate of Ranger School. Come to find out in the whole United States Army, I was the only one. I was the only interrogator who had done those things. So they said, yeah, we'll take that guy. So we're three months into this war in Iraq and I get plucked to this Delta Force team in Iraq, I've never gone to war. I'm doing all this Chinese Mandarin stuff. And that's how I sort of began my interrogation experience. That must have been like literally being picked up and put into an alien, on an alien planet. <laughs> Megan, I felt no more qualified to be at that war than I did before I joined the army. I was like, man, I really wish I was more prepared for this, but what do you do? I mean, who's really prepared to go to war? Nobody, nobody really is. So Eric, tell me a bit about what daily life was like in Iraq. What, what, what are some of your memories from that time? What kind of things were you doing on a daily basis? So for me, I was living with this small Delta Force team in Saddam Hussein's hometown of Tikrit. So it was Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti. And I would do interrogations to try to get prisoners from that area to willingly cooperate to give actual locations of insurgent fighters. So that was the goal, right? Let's go find fighters, capture them, get them off the battlefield. And some of these guys have got to be connected up the chain of command. And of course, the assumption was Saddam was at the top of the chain of command. 
So really, I was just trying to help them find bad guys. And I would do it all day. And then the Delta Force team, you know, if we got a location, they would go on raids at night. And I would go with them on those raids. So that was kind of crick, kind of scary. And then when we got to the houses, I'd have to interrogate the prisoners at the houses to figure out, do we have the right person? Because Megan, there was no uniforms. They had no identifications and they would have to willingly tell us who they were. So that, that was kind of my day in, day out. How did that work with the language barrier? This Delta Force team had three linguists, translators, who all spoke Iraqi Arabic, Iraqi, Iraqi dialect, and I, they were just with me. So nobody spoke English. I certainly, I spoke Chinese. So I had to have a translator, which is not easy. I don't know if anybody on the call has ever worked extensively with translators. It's, it's time consuming and there's not always complete clarity, but it, what are you going to do, right? We didn't speak the same language. And during your time in Iraq, you developed a specific technique, interrogatory technique, which you which you termed empathetic listening. Empathy-based listening, yes, that is correct. So everything we're taught in the United States military about interrogations, it's very zero-sum game. It's this idea that you're going to grab a prisoner off this battlefield, and they're going to be scared, and you're going to calm them down, kind of get them to like you a little bit, trust you. They're going to reveal what they need, and then you've got to, with conviction and authority, make them think, I'll, I'll take care of you. I know what's right for you. Well, it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work at all. And that's why we were struggling to find any high-value targets. We were f struggling to find anybody because these interrogations techniques didn't work. I didn't know how to get prisoners to talk. So as you can imagine, you just, you just start talking to them, right? And so what I realized is when I'm communicating with the prisoners, they don't really care about what you can do for them. They don't care how much you think you know. The only thing a person cares about during a communication at the beginning is, hey, this conversation, are you making this about yourself or are you making it about me? And so I realized when people do this, and even subconsciously, they drop keywords and terms. We call I call them breadcrumbs. And they're tests. They're subconscious tests to say, if you're listening to me, you're going to hear this unique word. And people miss these breadcrumbs all the time. And, and if you identify those and respond with curiosity, what I call discovery, not about your agenda, your own objectives, your, your, your biases, none of that, but with the curiosity to what it means to be this person. You don't really need to, matter of fact, they don't want you to discuss the problem. They want to figure out, before we get to the issue at hand, is this about me or is this about yourself? And once I can make my prisoners know, I, no, I'll make this about you. Matter of fact, this whole thing can be about you. Before they ever come to confession or giving useful information, they're the ones that will willingly say, you know what, Mr. Interrogator, I think we can work together. Here, let, let me tell you what I know. Does that help? And it's crazy. Like, I had no idea this communication style existed. I didn't know the level of trust that it can build. 
But it was these prisoners willingly saying, hey, I don't want to go back to the prison. I want to live with you guys. Hey, I'm done with Saddam. I'm going to work with you. And they did. And it took five months. It took 300 prisoners. But they unfolded the insurgency in the Sunni Triangle to extreme clarity. And they took us to the top. And we had figured out from these prisoners that there was only one person that actually knew where Saddam was hiding. It was one of his former bodyguards. And so we were, these prisoners and me and this Delta Force team, we were looking for this bodyguard. He was not on the deck of cards. He was not really wanted. But we were going after him. And on my last day in the country, very last day, we captured this bodyguard. The one guy Saddam trusted to never give up his location. And he trusted he would never turn against Saddam. And using this technique, this exact technique, this prisoner, this bodyguard, in less than two hours said, I know exactly where he is, Eric. And I'm going to take you. As a matter of fact, we better get going. And that night at 8 o'clock at night on December 13, 2003, he took the Delta Force team that I'd spent all these months with to the exact location of Saddam. Saddam was super smart. He only, only one person knew where he was. Saddam had a hiding hole. We call it a spider hole now. In this little village outside of his hometown. The prisoner not only took us to that house, he took us around the backside of the house and he even kicked up the sand, willingly kicked up the sand to the hole. And we lifted up that lid and sure enough, there he was. What, what was going through your mind at that moment when you saw him there? So, Megan, as I mentioned, this was the last day of my tour. This was the absolute last day. And the United States military, they kind of thought, because, Eric, you and this Delta Force team are trusting these prisoners, we don't think you're right. We think you're nuts. We don't think he's up in that little bitty town. We've been through every house. The, the town was so small, we can go through every house. So when my tour was over, right when he broke, when he said, yep, I said, hey, he's going to take us to this man, your flight's leaving. I left, I left the country. And I'm with this task force, that top secret task force, Joint Special Operations Command. They flew me to Doha, Qatar, because they said, you got to give a top secret out briefing in Doha, Qatar, just to get back to the United States. So they fly me to Doha, Qatar that night. Heck, the prisoners with the Delta Force team, they went on the raid I'm in Doha, Qatar. I did not find out about the capture of Saddam until the next morning. I show up to this building and they wouldn't even let me in the room. They said, hey, all briefings today have been canceled. Nobody's allowed in here. So I knew something was going on and one of the sergeants told them, they said, hey, this is Eric Maddox, the interrogator. And they kind of eyes perked up and they're like, you're Eric Maddox? Get in here. And they pulled me in the room and they said, Eric, your briefing's canceled because we got him. We got him last night. Your bodyguard did it. In my reaction, then that's when I found out it was so. So Megan, it was the most surreal moment I've ever had in my life. You know, people talk about, oh, what was the greatest day of your life? I mean, obviously, when your kids are born healthy, that's a great, it's great, right? But that's scary. You just want your kid, children, to be born healthy. When you get married, that's awesome. But you saw that one coming. Hopefully, 
When you find the most wanted man in the world and the United States government, your own military's told you you're nuts, you're crazy, and you went to war for the first time and you never really, you don't really know what you're doing, it's this overwhelming feeling of, like I felt like I was, my body just elevated to the ceiling of the room and I was just looking down on everything. I've never had that feeling before and I've never had that feeling since. But it was an out-of-body experience. It was amazing. It must have felt really quite overwhelming to think all of that time and effort that you put in to speaking to prisoners, to following what you really felt convicted about, you know, in terms of the technique, in terms of the way to, to get this information, to finally almost be vindicated in that, especially when you say that people were saying that you were crazy and you didn't know what you were talking about. That, that yeah, how did that feel? I think that's a great way to describe it because the joy was, okay, we found Saddam. He's the most wanted guy in the world. You guys didn't like him. Cool. I don't, I'm just a soldier. I, I'm, not, I'm sure he did a bunch of bad things. He's terrible. He really was a terrible person. But it was for me, the happiness was more the development of this process to gain cooperation from prisoners did not exist before. And this thing was amazing. And everybody thought you was crazy. You were crazy. So it was sort of that, like, hey, we did it a different way. And let me tell you something. If you have to change the way the military does things, it's not easy. They're not really down. They're not really cool with that, right? They don't like doing it a different way. So that was really, it was like, wow, we got this guy and we did it a completely different way. Let's talk about that different way because not everyone approved of it as you've Sort of suggested did you feel that your approach was an ethical approach i thought it was very ethical matter of fact i'm not sure people didn't think it was too ethical it was this idea that psychologically we're working with these prisoners we are they some of these prisoners were so close to us my delta force commander that we were they were living at our house in Tikrit. They, we didn't take them back to the prison. I mean, they were locked up in their room when like they were walking around making breakfast in the morning. But I think the ethical side of it, yes, I never laid a finger on them, not a finger. But it was still this idea, right? Because even if you say, okay, what are the laws of interior? What Legally, what must you do? No coercion, no torture. You do that, you break the law. But even the old techniques were very, hey, I'm gonna help you, you know, trust me, give me the information, but I don't really help you. And so this idea in a military, in a war zone, that you're actually gonna help somebody, says, we don't do that, we're at war, they're the bad guys. And I'm like, I get it, I completely understand. I'm not here of some sort of good Samaritan to help people. The bottom line is the best way to approach a problem is in collaboration and communication. It just is. I'm not Iraqi. I don't know Saddam. I don't know where he is. They do. I'm assuming if we can empower them with a level of trust that allows them to communicate and they choose to do this, it's a high power of, of trust. They're the ones that were driving this thing. You want to talk about the capture of Saddam Hussein. I'm very proud of what I did. Those prisoners drove 
the capture of Saddam. And you've got to look at him and go, you know, there is no Darth Vader. There's no Luke Skywalker. We're all people. We're jacked. We're messed up. We're all messed up. Let's not act like we're perfect and they're perfect. We're people. Let's see if we can have a mutual problem here. And, so, and that was my approach. So you, you talk about, you know, gaining their trust, building a friendship almost with them to the point where they were willing to trust you back and, and share information with you. How did you get them to ultimately do that in the sense that how were you able to follow through on some of those promises? Were, were you promising them, you know, uh, a change in their material circumstances? Um, were you promising them opportunities to work with the ministry? What was it that you were offering them from a kind of material perspective? Okay, so great question, but I got to be very clear. I was never friends with the prisoners. There was no friendship. They got a problem, I got a problem. This idea that somehow I developed any sort of friendship is just false. Need for, I always say, we don't need, they don't need sympathy. They don't need friendship. They need empathy. They need understanding. Now, a lot of times, the only time people have empathy is if there's a bond of friendship or emotion. And I realized they don't need my emotion. They don't need my sympathy. They need my understanding. So there's never a friendship, but there was never a grudge either. It's just getting a job done promises. That's amazing, right? What really blew my mind was that I assumed, wow, we're probably going to have to pay these guys. They probably want freedom. They want to work, as you said, work with the United States military. They didn't. When you come down to the level of trust that says, I'm here to figure you out, they have goals. But when you have the highest level of trust with somebody, their goals or just simply get me out of this prison eventually. And I would explain to him, I said, you know, you were a bad guy in our rule book. I said, we're measuring you. You fought against us. I said, to get you out means I got to wipe out every single person that influenced you to get in. I've got to make sure if you go home, you know, you're not going to get back with the wrong crowd of insurgent fighters. And then I don't need you in this prison. I don't even want you in this prison. And they 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 understood that. They said, okay, well, we got to take out my chain of command, which allowed them the empowerment to say, well, here's all the people that got me involved. So I will say I ended up after the capture of Saddam, which I did 300 interrogations during that tour, I ended up doing 2,700 interrogations in eight deployments over the next 10 years. Over 95% of my prisoners are free because it it's not that you have to promise them things and you've got to keep your word because there's some logins. I had no binding law to make me keep my word. It's the fact that internally people can read your nonverbal communication. And if you internally know you're not keeping your word, they're going to see it in you. Knowing that I could always give what I promised, they saw that. I mean, I was developing plans and they're like, can you do this? I'm like, yes, I can. Watch, here's how I'm going to do it. And as long as I had a clear path for them visually, that they understood how I was going to get them out of there. 
They knew. They could tell. They can read your nonverbal communication and go, I think you're you're not kidding, are you? I said, no, I'm not kidding, but we got to get to work. And that really created this great urgency, which gave us cooperation. You're listening to The Profile. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. So tell me a bit about some of the other techniques that you witnessed. Because am I right in understanding that you did witness torture in, in your time overseas in Iraq. So I didn't witness torture, but I heard, I kind of could see, listen, you just, you're in there, you're in, you're in the war zone, right? And you just go, I don't know what the techniques that are being used are, but I suspect they're not great. I don't know. So I'm not going to speculate of what I saw. What I will say is the techniques we were taught were based on, you better help me out or else. And it starts off, or else you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison, or else you're, you're never going to see your family again. To threat base. And, and, and sort of that, which is true. It's like, hey, you're a prisoner. You committed these acts of war against us during a war zone. We've captured you. We're at war. That's the way enemy prisoners of war work. So they did the stuff that they're going to receive and you could threaten them with the truth. That's not coercion. Coercion is this idea that we're we're threatening them with, with violence or illegal acts. But it's just a war zone. Being in a prison is not great. I mean, in and of itself, it's kind of torture. So I didn't see it, but I just noticed it's just not a great situation. Now, I did see the same pictures everyone else saw, right? The same pictures of Abu Ghraib, the same statements, the same everything everybody else saw. I'm not an idiot. You just piece those things together and go, hmm, all right. But you were just not willing to ever go down that route. You were very uh, ethical in your approach, I guess. I was just trying to be productive, Megan. I was just trying to be productive. And I think good studies of interrogations and effective psychology tells you that doesn't work. So if it did work, I think we would have another question on our mind. Then we'd say, what are the ethics of war? Which is, you know, what are the ethics of war? In and of itself, it's a pretty violent thing pretty gruesome. But I want to start with the question of effectiveness. Okay, we're agreed to go to war. We're going to kill each other and they're going to kill us and we're going to kill them. That's what we're doing here. But how productive is this? Are we getting the accomplishment of our mission? Because the problem is when you start about talking about the ethics of war, 
You can say, well, as long as you're winning, we can have ethics. But think about in the history, right, of world, of, of, of world history and going to war. When you start losing, you start throwing out the rule book. You're like, hey, this is survival of our country, of our people. And I think that's a dangerous game to play when we say, well, let's, let's follow these lines of ethics here. But when you're losing, many times people throw out the, the rule book. I just found it and said, this is the effective way to do it. And you're not doing, you're not doing unethical things. You're doing what's, what, what's right, what's truth, right? Like, like kindness and collaboration and communication. That is what's most effective. It's interesting you talk about, you know, the ethics of war, because as a Christian, I'm really interested in your perspective on on that. And I think a Christian pacifist listening to this would, would have those questions around, is it ever ethical to be going into war zones and killing people? Have you, have you thought about, have you thought through some of those questions? I've thought about those questions, and I think those are great questions to ask. I think if... if um... Christian pacifists see it that way. I think, wow, that's their perspective. Absolutely. Right. For me, I do believe that, you know, we have a, we have a, we have a fallen world. I'm not going to try to lean on just what the Bible says to justify being in the military and going to these wars. But I think we have a pretty screwed up world. And I think certain people, when they get levels of power, they can really take advantage of that and really do some brutal, brutal things. Now the question comes in, well, what's your authority to be the world police, right? Well, obviously there's gonna be different answers to that. And I know in the United States, many times we, we, take, we, we believe we have this huge obligation or right to be kind of the world police. You can back that up and say, well, yeah, but I bet you're just justifying that for whatever political or you know, money reasons, economic reasons, you're trying to do that. But I think it's a great question. I obviously chose to be in the military and go to these wars that nobody forced me in. So for me, I thought it was a justifiable occupation. But I certainly appreciate anybody else's perspective on that. That whole paradigm of kind of good versus evil, did, did, did your view shift at all while you were in these war zones? You know, when you're seeing bad being committed by the supposed good guys and the other way around, did, 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 did you in any, in any sense start to be challenged about the way that you viewed the world or the way that the na American narrative of we are the, the good guys kind of coming to enforce good? Did, did, did you have any sort of feelings on that? I, I never had like a sense of change. I think I've always had a pretty clear idea that when you talk about large organizations, you're going to have some bad people in those organizations. And you can have some really organizations you look at and say they're the enemy. And like I said, there's no Darth Vader. There's no Luke Skywalker. People are just people. So what I have found is when I have the opportunity to get to know someone, just communicate with them. They all have a justification for why they do things. And they believe it. I mean, you look at insurgent that, you know, there's a lot of radical Islamic fighters in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In their mind, they had justification for it. And you look at the United States military, 
It was overwhelmingly people who not only felt justified, but were also doing the right thing. I think that where it comes in is when you have these really tough struggles and you see people die or you can't find your person, it's where you go, God, you know what, the, the ends justify the means. And I think that is where some of these rules of law and warfare come into effect. And as you follow those, then you will stay within whatever the legal line is. But in those circumstances, in, in outside of war, you go, well, the ends justify the means, so maybe that's okay. But I would say, by and large, the United States military service members, they followed those rules. They followed the rules. So it, it didn't change my good and bad, because I always felt like I had a pretty strong idea of there's bad people in good organizations and there's good people in bad organizations, or what we deem bad, or even what we deem good. It's who's who has a right to say. When you found out that Saddam had gone through that process of a trial and then been executed, how did you feel knowing that he he was dead? I really didn't have any emotions at all. You know, with the capture of Saddam, that was the mission find this guy. I did. I immediately went on to the next mission. I was almost very quickly sent off to my next war zone, right? It was Afghanistan. So for me, it was, I have this job to do. I did the job. He's captured. Um, you know, I've always felt strategically, I wouldn't have killed him because I think everybody has information we can use. And I never had a chance to interrogate Saddam. Quite honestly, I didn't want to interrogate Saddam. He's captured. What do I need to talk to this guy for? But he's got information. He has perspective. And I've always said, when you kill him, you're not. there's no more talking to him. So what's the rush? Maybe there were political reasons. Maybe people felt the need to do that. I don't know. I wouldn't have. But it's certainly not my call. So I, that's, it's, they do what they do. I had, okay. I mean, one of the big justifications for war in Iraq, when, you know, when the coalition went in, was this idea that there were weapons of mass destruction. And I remember it here in the UK, there were big protests about it before the invasion. And of course, subsequently we discovered that there weren't actually any of these, these weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. What was your response to that? Did you feel that the war had been futile? Uh, or, or um, did you feel in any way that, that your time there had been, uh, you, you'd kind of been lied to, I guess, and spent all that time there in a very difficult, in very difficult circumstances. What was your response? I mean, I didn't have any sort of that level response. When you're a service member, you're just trying to do your job. You sign up to commit to the missions. And you just do the missions, right? You you just do. Uh, clearly, I was surprised as everyone. And being in the intel world then for several years after, you know, I truly do. And at the bottom of my heart, I do believe at the top of the administration, they believed there were weapons of mass destruction. I do believe that there was not um, objectivity when they were gathering the intel. And they were trusting sort of informants that they really shouldn't have been trusting to that were convincing them of this. And I think that was just a clear mistake, even a mistake in judgment. 
maybe there was even the mistake to the point where they said, well, we'd like for there to be because that can justify our actions because we really want to take this guy out because he is problematic. So again, I think you have to look and say, well, what is the purpose? When I look at the Arab Spring that occurred several years later, I mean, the bottom line is with the open lines of communication, with cell phones and the internet, and these, these, these masses of people living throughout different countries of the Middle East who were being run by brutal dictators or just leaders who, who were very dominating. This was going to happen. You, you can look at the way it happened in Syria where nobody stepped in. That country shambles. It's wiped out. Everything that was wonderful and awesome about Syria is gone. Right? You look at Egypt and say, well, they're just going to go through some different levels of revolutions. And you can look throughout that. Well, it was going to happen. And how do you want it to happen? And then you have to look at this secondary element, which is very powerful, which is called Al Qaeda, right? And these radical Islamic organizations who are looking for a disgruntled population in the Middle East where they can come in during a revolution and say, no, we're going to set up here and we're going to set up this, this battle plan. It's interesting you mentioned Al-Qaeda because I think critics of the war, certainly some people feel that by toppling Saddam, it created the kind of fertile ground for some of the groups like Al-Qaeda and Islamic State to move into those areas. What's your view on that? Again, my perspective, right? I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. It was going to happen and it was going to happen where it was going to happen. Look at the Arab Spring. Iraq did not escalate the disgruntled youth, predominantly male, in the Middle East. They were not given opportunities. They were never given hope. And you have these gang of sorts. And that gang was, was galvanized by radical Islam. These leaders came in and were wonderful at marketing and recruiting into these gangs. Now, I say that definitively. It was going to happen. That's my perspective, Megan. Somebody thinks that it was going to be peaceful if we got, didn't go in Iraq. That's their perspective. I strongly disagree based on the available information that I've had, but that's what I think. Do you think that the global war on terror has been successful? I don't know. I do, but I mean, I look at it now and go, you know what? There will always be disgruntled youth. There will always be young males. And now it's, it's I'm not saying they're not females too, but it, it predominantly starts and grows to this young male population throughout the world who don't see opportunities. And if they don't have opportunities, they're going to find people that are going to take care of them. Give them hope. So the global war on terrorism, I, I don't know. It's not going. I, I don't even know what that is. I Seriously, I don't know what that is. It was a, it was a phrase that was used to sort of get, get Americans, maybe other countries' citizens, focused on a problem that was on the rise. 
I will say, I think it's slightly on the decline. I don't know. It's because we're all done with this pandemic or people are just making a lot more money these days. I mean, you know, <laughs> money seems to calm people down, right? You can even look with Ireland and the UK. You talk about all the reasons why, you know, things have sort of simmered down. It's like, hey, when the economy picks up, people seem to chill out. But do they really or they just take their fight somewhere else? So, again, I think we live in a fallen world and there's always going to be problems. I don't know what the global war on terrorism is. You eventually left the army, Eric. Tell me about what your reasons were for, for that decision. So I actually left the army, Megan, in 2004, right after the capture of Saddam, the United States government, the Department of Defense, they loved the way I did these interrogations. Heck, they loved the fact they found Saddam Hussein. They'd been looking for Saddam and bin Laden for quite a while, we had never found anybody really of importance unless we stumbled on them. So they said, get out of the army. I joined what's called the Defense Intelligence Agency as an interrogator. So I did that for 10 more years. My reason to get out of the military was because I was allowed to focus exclusively on the development of this interrogation technique. I knew I was going to have a greater impact with this process of interrogations. I was only given really high value target missions, high value prisoners where I knew there's a better impact. And in 2014, I retired from the government. I'd done 20 years. I, I'm not saying I was bored, but heck, I'd done 2,700 interrogations. I felt like I was just doing the same interrogations and I realized I was being asked to teach this to business leaders, business professionals, people to help in relationships, to give speeches about tracking down Saddam and how do you get people to communicate? How do you learn to listen? How do you actually build trust in relationships? And I loved it. I just thought it was awesome. And so that's what I've done for now the last eight years is train, teach people. How do we be better listeners? What does communication mean? Don't think you're always right. What's their perspective? And what are we trying to do here? We trying to win an argument? Because that's what they do on TV, right? On the news, I just win an argument. Are we actually trying to learn from each other? You know, I, hey, how do you see that? I don't know, how do you see it? Huh, that's interesting. Are we just trying to make everybody think we're right? So that's sort of what I've done over the last eight years. And that's why I got out of the military. I understand it can be quite difficult for some people going from that the, those military experiences, you know, being in war zones, then to suddenly being back as a civilian. Did you find that challenging in any way? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, you go to these war zones and you're so focused. You work 20 hours a day. You've got these missions. I mean, you are you don't have to worry about paying bills or driving to the store or dealing with anything. You're so focused and so dialed in. And you come back and you're like, I don't know if I can handle this rat race. Just send me back to war. And it's a it's a it's a huge challenge. And then you see things out there. You know, you go on these raids and people are dying and getting shot and blowing up. You know people who like dying and it's, you go back to the rat race and there's definitely a sense of 
I don't think anybody here cares. But what are you going to do? I don't need any, anybody to care. It's not their job to care. They're living their lives too. I just had to, it's hard to just jump back into that rat race. Yeah. How have you, how have you sort of handled your mental health over, through those processes? Have you found anything to be particularly helpful? Or have you, have you found your faith to be particularly helpful in those moments of, of real difficulty and real challenge? Megan, the only thing that's helped me is Jesus. That's it. I don't care what you, I can't imagine anything having gotten me through. And, and it's not, I don't even know if it's necessarily got me through the experience of the war and then transitioning back in this world. I don't know how people live in this world without Christ, right? And it's almost like, it's not even as if you're living in this world. Because when you give up complete control, you say, Hey, God, I admit I can't handle this. And I'm pretty screwed up, too. And I can't seem to forgive myself. And I can't seem to forgive other people. And I can't handle this rat race. But you've forgiven me. And I can keep my eyes on you. And you got this Holy Spirit that's awesome, who kind of helps me and guides me and really is the only reason I can get through this. So I can't even describe like, oh, it's been helpful to have Christ in my life. It's the only thing that has gotten me through. And I'm not even certain it's because of my war experience. I don't know how people do it without him. It's really interesting you say that and you talk about the rat race. It, it sounds to me almost as if you find like civilian life harder. Would that be a fair assessment? Am I understanding you correctly? I think it's times harder. <laughs> I think it's so much more difficult. Tell me a bit war. about some of the things that you find challenging in kind of everyday life. It's the juggling of so many things in the air and not being able to stay focused on any particular thing. When I'm with a prisoner in a small room, all I have to do is listen to them. I have, I always say they have a movie and I need to get on their stage. They're the lead actor in their movie and I've got to go become the supporting actor. It's one movie. When you come back to the world, you have your family and your children and your responsibilities and the bills and all this stuff. And all, it's just a rat race. So for me, I thought war was so much easier. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to die, right? Maybe, maybe not. Hopefully not. And if you look the odds, if you don't die, well, you're only going to die once. Heck. So if you go, you know, worst case scenario, you die. This is pretty dialed in here. I, this, is, this is not too bad at all. I, I can stay focused. There's not a bunch. You live in the world. It's like, it's terrible. It's too much. Just to kind of go back to, to what you were saying about your faith being the absolute center of, of, of everything. 
Um, what does that look like for you? Do, do you have a daily practice of prayer or, or do you get a lot of solace from your kind of regular church going or what does faith look like to you now, Eric? That's a great question. So it's always a journey for me. Are you, are you staying on the path? Are you staying focused with God? Are you giving up control? Or are you going to live in this world? It's just it's one of two. So for me, obviously, I love church. I love my preacher. I listen daily to preachings on my phone. I pray and always wonder, am I doing it right? And I'm starting to come like, as we speak today, I'm kind of wondering like, am I doing all the talking and maybe I should shut up and listen to God a little bit better. But I always wonder, always have, always have questions. Is this, am I in the path of God? Am I listening to him? I am pressured buy money, support my family. I have five children. We have obligations, you know, but we like to buy things. Am I trusting him complete in control? I know one of the things that really helps me is blind tithing, just tithe, 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 tithe. If this money and this rat race is about money and having things, and I'm scared, am I going to be able to support my family and do the things that we want to do? Do I trust God with those ties? That for me is such a big thing, right? But that's just me because I get worldly with money because I'm trying to support my family. But when I blindly tithe, it's this great feeling. I have a weekly Bible study of a group of men that hold me very accountable. We hold each other accountable. And then on the annual basis, I'll go on multiple kind of weekend retreats. We study the Bible, and pray, get in the Holy Spirit. And then I think another great step for me is to realize God is a lot. God, the Holy Spirit is a living God. And then I also look and go, Hey, think, Eric, think about all those people that brought you to Christ. Think about those preachers who communicated with you. Think about your wife who got you and demanded that you do this. Everybody hadn't had that opportunity. Are you going to let them, when you get up to heaven, are you going to look up there and go, huh, I was hoping they would be here, but did I do anything? Because if you didn't, well, enjoy eternity. Because they don't get to have that opportunity. People gave me that opportunity, and then I think of the people I'm very close to that are not saved and I go, wait a second, I can't make anybody be saved. They have to make that own decision. The Holy Spirit's going to help them. That's between them and God. But if I can influence them, but I can't, sometimes my family and my closest people to me don't want to listen to me, right? Because we're too close. But if maybe I can help somebody else and then somebody else can help my family. And you know, maybe you can inspire people that inspire people and it trickle down and eventually get to those people you love. So for me, that's where I see, right? It's like, wait a second, what are we doing here? We're here to shine of Christ so that other people can learn him and can be saved for eternity. And I certainly think, if, hey, have I done things to damage the kingdom? 
people look at you and go, man, that's war in Iraq is so stupid. Americans go to war and you're such an idiot. My goodness, I don't care. I won't listen to you ever. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to beat yourself up about it? Or are you going to say, hey, I wish they didn't feel that way, but all I can do is shine. All I can do is shine. So watch yourself because everyone's watching. Everyone's watching each other. You shining? Are you, 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 you throwing shadow and shade on the kingdom? And that's sort of the way I live, or at least try to live. I think we all we all do, don't we? And it and it's a lifelong learning process. Yeah, I'm about to turn fifty, Megan, and I'm like, man, I thought I'd have this figured out by now, but apparently <laughs> that's not going to happen. Look, Eric, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting to know you. Thank you so much for your honesty in this interview and for sharing so much of your experience and your your worldview and your faith. And it's been a real pleasure. So thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you, Megan. Have a good day. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. <laughs>